Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has, been, which with, he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the word of the Lord. This new series on Ephesians, which is something that we're excited about, we're going to be spending 23 weeks exploring Ephesians together. And Ephesians was this letter, just to give you a little bit of an overview of what it is. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote much of the New Testament, about 13 books. And it's a letter written to a church. I love reading letters written to people I know. If, I were to, if you were to go back and, and read letters of maybe your grandparents writing notes to one another before they had text messages with emojis, it's romantic, it's beautiful. And so this is Paul writing a letter to the church, and in this letter we learn so much about who we are in Christ, who we are as people who follow after Jesus. We're going to be spending 23 weeks together. The first three, there's six chapters in Ephesians. Um, it's just this short book, you know, only six chapters. And the first three chapters are some of the most rich, dense, beautiful, immeasurable, fantastic theology that you can find anywhere in the scripture. It's just rich with theology, not a lick of application in the first three chapters. And then the second three chapters, four through six, he just takes everything that he talked about in these first three chapters and he starts applying it. He says, and, and you leaders in the church, apply it this way. And you uh, in your marriage, apply it this way. And you here, apply, apply it this way. He just applies it all over the place. Now, does that mean that we're not going to do any application for the next uh, 12 weeks as we explore the first three chapters? No. And here's why. Because theology is wonderfully practical. Always. That's why Paul's spending so much time in it. It's so practical. I love theology, but I don't love theology in the way that many people love theology. You know, a lot of people like theology for theology's sake. They like to have a big head. They like to know a lot of things. Theology, just to know stuff in your head, is of no use without love. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. We must have love. So our theology, what it does is it actually forms our culture. When we read these things, it shapes who we are, and who we are forms how we behave. And so as we dive into this theology, it's going to help us to understand who we are in Christ. And as we understand who we are in Christ, we'll be provoked to love one another more because we'll understand the sweet good news and we'll be provoked to have grace with one another more. Isn't that something that our world needs? Is grace and forgiveness and love? And that's what our theology gives us. So with this in mind, what I want to do is actually skip forward a little bit, bit in the book because Paul offers this fantastic pastoral prayer. 
And this prayer is how he wants us to receive this letter. So right now, we're just kind of in the introductory part of the letter. But if you skip down to verse 16, Paul tells us what he prays for the church. And he tells us how he wants the church to receive the letter. And we're going to be going through this passage together as a church in a few weeks. But as we first dive into this letter, I think that we should let the Apostle Paul's words, his prayer, be our prayer this morning together as a church. So read with me verses 16 through 20. This is what Paul says. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And I just want us to take that you, and it is the church at Ephesus, but say you, City on a Hill Church in Somerville. I do not cease to give thanks for you, Koa Somerville, remembering you, church, in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, that's something we need, and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That the eyes of our hearts enlightened. That you, church, may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the work of his great might that we that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places amen may that be what we experience for the next 23 weeks as we dive into this book Let's dive into this text. The first two verses are pretty customary for New Testament epistles, which an epistle is just a letter. Uh, so it's pretty customary. It just says, uh, Paul's just introducing himself and he's saying who's, who he's addressing. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints. Now, saint, let's just pause for one second. To the saints in Ephesus. Is he speaking to an elite group of people there? This word saints, it's agios in the Greek, and it just means holy ones to the holy ones in Ephesus. So he's not talking about, you know, St. Mary or St. Peter or anything like that. He's just talking about the holy ones in Ephesus. He's talking to Christians because every Christian has been made holy by Christ. To the saints, to the Christians who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul does right after this little introductory statement is astonishing. What he does is he starts this super long sentence. Verse 3 through 14 is all it is, is Paul gushing out what he thinks it means to be blessed by God. As people who have received uh, the, the grace of Jesus, he's just pouring out this really long, elegant sentence. It's so long. It's, it's one sentence, but we're handling it. And most of our uh, translations split it into two different paragraphs even. It's really hard to make one sentence in English like this. It works in the Greek. It's really kind of technical and, and, and difficult to understand at times. As you read the Greek, it's not difficult to understand. It's just like super long. And this is Paul just like pouring it out. But for us, we're going to have to divide this in three weeks because it's just so rich for us to see this one sentence that he writes. And he starts that sentence with verse 3. 
And that's what the rest of these next uh, 12 verses are pointing toward. 11 verses. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's just stop there for a minute. That's super profound. We, we can't go over that too quickly here. Because it sounds just like churchy language, but you need to sit and, and think about what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that our God and Father, He has blessed us, past tense, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That we have every spiritual blessing. That is a heavy statement. I just, you need to process that for a few minutes. If you plug that into a computer, their, their processor would run into overdrive. They wouldn't be able to do it. The computer would crash if you put all of that data in there. Because he's saying every spiritual blessing. That is a weight. That has spiritual weight to it. That is a weight that would break our backs if we were to take it in all at once. And so what Paul does for the next 11 verses is he unpacks what it means to have every spiritual blessing. He says, you've been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. Let me tell you how he's done it. He's just gushing out what it means to be blessed. It would almost be like opening your computer, going to your bank account, and seeing that you have a billion dollars. Well, you can't even take that all in at once. What does that even mean? I have no idea what that means. It's like I'm just trying to pay rent every month, you know? And now all of a sudden, you've been given this huge deposit. And Paul is trying to explain to you how your life's going to be different now. Christian, church, hear this. The process of maturing in Christianity is a process of understanding the extent to which you have already been blessed to a greater and greater degree. It's understanding what you've already received from God more and more and more. And it's just something we'll never quite complete in this life. You can't mine all of the gold out of this cave. It is just a process of seeing how much God has already blessed you. And as you understand that blessing to a greater degree, what happens? The more you understand that blessing, not your physical blessing, but your spiritual blessing, the more you understand it, the more your joy increases. There's this direct relationship between your joy in Christ and your understanding of every spiritual blessing that he has imparted upon you. So as we talk about this spiritual blessing, I want to break it into three points. Uh, the first point's the longest, and the second one's the second longest, and the third one's very short, okay? Just to prepare you. I don't want you to be caught off guard as we, as we have a very long first point. What does it mean that we have every spiritual blessing? Point one, what does it mean that we have every spiritual blessing? Point two, how do we get every spiritual blessing? And point three, why does God give us every spiritual blessing? Let's dive in. What does it mean that we have every spiritual blessing? Number one, let me ask you a few questions. Have you been blessed by God? If you were to go into community group for your first community group this week and someone said, 
Tell us how God has blessed you this week. What would you talk about? For most of us, as we talk about how we've been blessed by God, the things that come to mind and the things that we share about are physical things. I've been blessed by God because he's given me this house that I get to live in. I've been blessed by God for my family. It's such a blessing. It's, it's entered into our vernacular in that kind of way. We either talk about blessing in that way or we use it as a derogatory comment where we say, bless his heart. A southerner might say it. It more comes out like, bless his heart. And it's this derogatory comment like, he's a real idiot. Bless his heart. So if you hear a southerner say, bless your heart, that's not a compliment, okay? I just need to give you that little tip as you, as you might journey down south at some point. For Paul, the physical blessings of the house, of the family, finances, whatever it might be, those are never the primary way that God blesses his people. For Paul, he never got over the simple truth of his salvation. Our greatest blessings are not physical things, but spiritual things. Even if you have nothing, you can be, you, you, if you're a Christian, you still have every spiritual blessing. This is how our brothers and sisters throughout the past, 2000, uh, the past two millennia have endured poverty, pain, have endured persecution, not because they have all these physical blessings from God, because they have every spiritual blessing from God. We have such an Americanized Christianity where we feel like if we do not have every comfort on the planet that we have been cursed by God, that we have lost His blessing. But our God blesses us in the heavenly places with this every spiritual blessing, even when we have nothing. Now he says that we have every spiritual blessing, verse 3, we have in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does he mean in the heavenly places as we look at that? It sounds like something's just stored up in heaven waiting for us. That Like right now we don't have these spiritual blessings, but one day we will have these spiritual blessings. But friends, that's not quite the same picture that Paul's drawing. Because for Paul, when he talks about heavenly places, when he talks about heaven, heaven is an inaugurated reality. That means that it has started currently and that it will go on through eternity. So when Jesus us, promises us eternal life, eternal life does not start at death. Eternal life starts when you receive the good news of Jesus. When we think about heaven, heaven is not just the place you go to when you die. Because there are two places you can go to when you die. We've got heaven and hell. It's not just eternal life. Heaven is the place where Jesus is, right? And so to be near Jesus is to be in heaven. And today, Jesus promises to be with his people that he will never leave us or forsake us. And so therefore, Jesus is with us in a real way, and we are in the heavenly places currently. To Paul, this is a current reality. He says in Colossians that you, ha that you have been, past tense, have been raised with Christ. That your life has been made new. You've been raised with Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, there's part of you that's already dwelling in the heavenly places. And so heaven has this both future and present connotation. Yes, it will be more full. There will come a day when we get to see him eye to eye. And today it's as if we're looking at a dim mirror 
but one day we will see perfectly. And so he says that we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Right now we get to taste it. One day we get to experience it in full. But that still means that we get to enjoy it and experience it some today. So what are these spiritual blessings? That's what this whole long sentence through verse 14 is all about. Paul just goes on and on and on. And like I said, we're going to break it up into three parts. So this week, we're only going to cover the first six verses. So I'm only going to be able to talk about a little piece of every spiritual blessing. But it is such a satisfying and joyful piece. This, this is like a piece of hard candy when he talks about every spiritual blessing. It's like you got to kind of, you got to have to let it melt a little bit. If you try to bite into it, it might be like kind of hard to, to taste it all at once. You have, to look, you have to savor it. So we're going to savor it over the next three weeks. This week, we're going to talk about what it means to be adopted by God. To be adopted by God is a huge spiritual blessing for us. This doctrine can bring life to your soul. It can help you through dark nights. It can bring strength to weary bones. What does it mean that we're adopted by God? Verse 4. This is what Paul says that we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, Paul, (laughs) he's not like delaying at all. He's like, first six verses, predestination, let's go. That's fun. We get to talk about predestination today. But that's not the point of exactly what he's doing. What he's talking about is what it means to be adopted to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Think about the implications of what it means to be an adopted child of God. What does it mean to be a child of God, period? But second of all, it means to be adopted means at one point we weren't a child of God. That we were going our own way. That we were walking away from him. And that he came and adopted us into his family. Which, to be adopted into the family of God as his father is to receive every benefit that a child receives. God is not like the father in Royal Tenenbaums. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. Old Wes Anderson movie like 20 years ago. Uh, It was popular when I was in college. I I love it. Anyways, it's the father there, he has... Three children, they're all geniuses, but one of them, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, Margot Tenenbaum, he, he introduces her. Actually, the way it goes is Margot Tenenbaum was adopted at age two. Her father always noted this when introducing her. And then it cuts to a scene, he's like, this is my adopted, my adopted uh, daughter, Margot Tenenbaum. That's not the way that God introduces us. He's not saying, this is my adopted child. This is my child. This is my child. And you have full access, full standing as a child of God, which means you have full access to God. Who dares walk into a king's bedroom in the middle of a night to ask for a cup of water? No one but a child. No one but a child. But that child has full access to the king. That child can walk in there and say, Dad, I need a glass of water. Or, Dad, I peed my bed. And the king himself gets up and cares for his child. You see, God does not govern us 
in this distant way as just his citizens. He governs us as a father governs his children. It also means that we have utter security with him. Our God is not a God who disowns his children, who abandons his children. My father left when I was five years old, abandoned my family. Our father will never do that. I could never, Lord, Lord help me, I could never disown my children. For those of you who have experienced this abandonment of dis being disowned, being, going through some sort of abuse from your father, our Heavenly Father is not that way. What kind of man would I be if I disowned my children? There might be things that my children do that I don't approve of. There might be things that I say, hey, I wish you would make a better decision on this, but I could never, ever disown them. I love them. I love them. He loves us in that way. He would never leave or disown us. To be adopted by God means that we have an inheritance. When you read this passage, you might read it and think, how sexist of Paul. Because he says that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The, the Greek is actually really clear here. It's not sons and daughters. It's sons. That is one of the most inclusive passages in the entire scripture, though. Because he's not addressing just men. He's addressing men and women. And so, in this culture, only sons received an inheritance. And so, for Paul to say, men and women, you've been adopted as sons of God, means that we both get inheritance. We get full rights of being a child of God. It's actually a very inclusive phrase. It's not meant to be exclusive when you think about it in its proper cultural setting. That we've been adopted means that we receive an eternal inheritance. It means that everything he has will be ours. It is ours in the heavenly places. And to be adopted means that our God will discipline us. What kind of loving father would you be if you did not bring discipline to your children? The book of Hebrews says it very clearly that if he loves you, he will discipline you. Discipline might not sound like a good thing, but when you see your children engaging in self-destructive patterns, the most loving thing to do for them is to discipline them. So friends, if you have felt the hand of God on you bringing discipline, he is trying to lead you back to himself. He is trying to lead you back to flourishing and say, follow after me. This is the best way to live. Uh, Russ Moore uh, tells this story. He's, he adopted two sons from a Russian orphanage. And uh, he, he works for Christianity Today now. He's, he's one of my bigger influences in life. And uh, Russell Moore tells the story of how we're adopted by God. And he says this, he says, imagine with me for just a moment that you're adopting a child. When you meet with the social worker in the last stage of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He obsessively hurts himself and others around him. He acts out sexually. But the social worker doesn't really fill in what that means. 
His family history is rough. His father, grandfather, and great-grandfather all had histories of violence ranging from abuse to serial murder. Think just for a moment. Would you want this child? If you did adopt him, would you keep your eye on him as he played with your other children? Well, Russell Moore says, this child is you, and he's me. And that's what the gospel tells us, that when you get deep into our hearts, we're much more messed up than any of us would like to admit. And yet God adopts us and calls us his child. He makes us an heir to his kingdom. So to be spiritually blessed is to be adopted by God. Now, how do we get this spiritual blessing? The first thing you notice as he talks about this, point two, how do we get this spiritual blessing, is that we have been given it in Christ. Verse three, again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He doesn't just give it to us. It's found in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. But you know what that means? That the moment you trust in Christ, you receive every spiritual blessing. That there aren't different levels of spiritual blessing that you can attain to. But the moment that you place your trust in Christ and you're found in Him, you receive every spiritual blessing. You know what that means? It means that you and you and you and me have the same level of spiritual blessing. You know what it means? It means that Tim Keller, John Piper, Beth Moore, Tony Evans, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Augustine, and you have equal spiritual blessing. Because if you have every spiritual blessing, you have them all. You can't have any more than anybody else. You have them all. It's nothing you can do. You can't earn any more. You have them all because you're in Christ. And that's what Paul's trying to get at when he's talking about the predestination stuff. The predestination stuff, he's not throwing it in there to stir up controversy because I know people like to argue about that stuff. But that's not Paul's point at all. The doctrine of predestination and election is meant to remind us of this gospel fact that we do not save ourselves, that it is not given to us based upon what we have done to earn it, but it is given to us based upon His sovereign choice, based upon His kindness, that our salvation belongs to Him. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I know that sometimes when we come to this predestination stuff, there's probably a small percentage of you who have a lot of objections going through your mind right now as we look at this. And I'd be happy to sit down with you. I know Ben would be happy to sit down with you. Uh, There are other leaders of this church that would be happy to sit down with you and talk with you about those objections that you have. I cannot possibly, I could sit, stand here all day, probably, and give a lecture on predestination and all the objections, but that's not the point of the passage. The fact is, the Bible says it right here, and you got to do something with it. 
If you tried to read the Bible without reading anything about predestination, it'd be kind of like going outside to get some yard work done and say, I'm not going to get dirty. You'd like pull a few weeds, you get a little bit of dirt on your pants. Uh, then you keep working. And before you know it, you're just going to be like, well, I'm filthy. I need to take a shower before my friends come over. Predestination, you can't get away from it when you read the scriptures. It's all over the scriptures. And Paul is trying to teach us here that God does all of the work for adoption. That he didn't adopt us because we're so awesome, but rather he predestined to adopt us before the foundation of the world. You see, it doesn't, it's not how good you were at that moment. Let's think about it like this. Those of you who are Christians, if I asked you, why are you a Christian? And other people aren't. What would you tell me? Well, you could say, well, I've, I trusted in Jesus, and other people haven't trusted in Jesus. And I would say, yes, but why did you trust in Jesus? And other people didn't. And that's a very, you have to be careful how you answer that question. Because if you answer that question with, well, I just had a more clear head, and I was smarter than those around me, and so I saw that this was apparently true, and so I must accept it. Then, or you, that, then you're claiming to be smarter than other people. That is on you. Or if you say, well, you know, I'm actually just so exceedingly humble. I saw my need for a Savior when other people did not see their need for a Savior. There you go again. It's like based upon how good you are. The only thing you can say is, well, God opened my eyes to the truth. I did not want it. I was going my own way. And God opened my eyes to it. And he changed my heart. And I think that this is true. And I think that you should weigh the truth. I will reason with you. I will use my mind. We can talk about our minds. And I will present to you this good news. And you know, people presented this good news to me over and over and over again before God made it click one day. It's not that we give up trying to share the gospel because whoever he's predestined is who he's predestined. Because I've met many people predestined by God to be children of him forever who have had, to be, have had many, 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 many conversations about what it means to be a Christian. So it doesn't actually cause us to stand, stand back. It causes us to lean in more. We can share more because he is sovereign and he will do the work. We can trust him. It's not up to how well you explain it. And at the end of the day, he can use a very simple explanation of the gospel to change someone's heart. He is completely sovereign over everything. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate here. He's trying to make this simple point. That church, Christian, you are not better than anyone else. That's what he's saying. It's not upon you, but God chose you before the foundation of the world. It's God who does the saving. You know, when I was in college, we would argue about predestination all the time because that's what you do when you're in your early 20s and you want to go into ministry. I had a lot of friends that also wanted to be pastors who are pastors, and so what we would do is we'd sit around and talk about theology. 
And you end up arguing about this sort of thing. We argued about it less in seminary, actually, because maybe we had a little bit more maturity. Maybe. We did some silly things in seminary as well. But in college, we would argue about this all the time. And I had one friend who we called Pope. Uh, it's because his last name was Pope. And he was um, a former drug addict, drug addict. He was an alcoholic and, and drug addict who had gotten off drugs. And he was hanging out with us because we weren't doing drugs. And he just would never participate in the arguments. So, but when you asked him, like, hey, Pope, what do you think? And he's like, I think you guys are crazy. Why are you arguing about this? Look, if God didn't do the choosing, if God didn't do this stuff, I would be in some back alley with a needle in my arm right now. You see, Pope knew what he had been saved from when the rest of us still felt like it was partly on me for being so awesome. But he knew, hey, I would never have been saved from that. God did amazing things in my life. He saw the weight of his own sin and how he was going his own way. And so he didn't have to be convinced. It just made sense for him. May that be for us as well. This last point, as I said, it's the short one. Why does God give us every spiritual blessing? If you hang around the church long enough, you're going to have people ask a lot of why questions. Why does God do it this way? Why does it hurt so much? Why does it have to be so hard? Why doesn't God save everyone? Why doesn't God do this that I've been asking him to? Why isn't God answering my prayer? But there's one question that immediately displays a spiritual maturity and depth of insight in a sense that you are getting it, that you've gotten this. And it's this question, and I rarely hear it asked, but Paul answers it anyways. And it's, why would God ever do that for me? Why would he ever do that for me? Why would he adopt me? I didn't deserve that. Why would he do that? And he answers it in verse 6. He says in verse 5, according to the purpose of his will, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Our God is good. And he does all things for his own glory. That's the only answer. For his own glory. That he is glorious. That he deserves all the glory. And he does this for his own glory. Not for me. But for his own glory. And yeah, it is for me. He, he loves me. But it's ultimately to shine back his glory to the world. Chance the Rapper has this song. He says, when the praises go up, what happens? The blessings come down. Chance, you got it backwards, bro. All right? This is why you don't learn theology from a rapper. All right? It's when the blessings come down, the praises go up. It's not based upon how much you praise him, but how much he's blessed you. Our praise is a response to what he has done for us. So let's praise Jesus for his wonderful grace. Every week we end our service with songs. And that's not just a nice way to tie it up. It's a response to what we've heard in the word. We respond to God's good news by singing his praise. He has given us every spiritual blessing. And these spiritual blessings help us in everyday life. They are so much more valuable than our physical blessings.
So let's respond to God in song. And while we sing this song, we're going to respond to God also through the receiving of the sacred meal of communion. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a a cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So each week when we participate in this holy meal, we're being reminded that one day we will participate in a holy meal with Christ in heaven. And that we get to be We get to taste a piece of that each week. So right now, just as we taste a piece of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, we're reminded of that by a little piece of the meal. Uh, Hey, we we begin with a call to worship. We end with a benediction. And uh, this is a blessing for the roads. May our God and Father bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. May you live out your life not in fear, that you're never good enough, but may you live out your life as a chosen, adopted, predestined, loved, redeemed son of God, cherished as a son or a daughter, loved with a full inheritance. Go from this place, not with empty power, but with the full power of Christ leading and guiding you. Go now in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you.